Amen. Hey, this morning we're going to continue in our study of 1 Corinthians. We're going to be in chapter 14, verses 1 through 12. If you don't have a Bible, you can find one in the back of the pew in front of you. Uh, we'd love for you to take that home if you don't have one. If you're not familiar with how to use the Bible, you can find a table of contents at the front of it, and that's going to let you know where to find the different books. The larger numbers are going to be chapters, and the smaller numbers are going to be verses. So again, this morning, we're in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 14, going uh, verses 1 through verse 12. Now, as we step into this, uh, and it's really over the next three or four weeks that we're going to be uh, expositing and going through chapter 14, and, and I just kind of want you to see how the the theme of this, or how Paul is uniting those things in 12, 13, and then now tying them together in 14. So chapter 12 opens up, and, and Paul recognizes that there's uh, some significant discord going on in Corinth, and largely it centers on the issue of what various spiritual gifts they have. And so they think that the, the gifts that are uh, more noticeable, uh, more readily discernible and seen, they think that's evidence or a sign that God has a more pronounced blessing upon them and upon their lives. And so if, if God's blessing rests really favorably upon Ross, and so we're looking at Ross and, and wondering all the various ways that this is going to show up, and then all of a sudden we see Ross speaking in tongues, we're like, that's it, that's what I want, right? That's how that works. And so they've created this kind of pecking order uh, within the church there in Corinth that those that speak in tongues, everybody says, well, that's all right. That's all right. That's Ross has it. That's good stuff. That's what we want. That's how we want our lives to be. And they begin to shift that direction and shift their focus to focusing on that. And Paul says, hold on now. Hold on now. You understand something that, that God gives to each person as he apportions to them and purposes them for them to have it. And so the gift that he's given to Ross is good for everybody around him, but it's not just for building Ross up and making us say, Ross, you're such a good, amazing guy. And of course, we would say amen and, and that he is, Right? Not everybody here's your friend. <laughs> I'm just saying. And so that's, that's kind of what he's gone through and communicated. So he gets to the end of chapter 12, and he wants them to understand this. So he gets to verse 31, and he says, But earnestly desire the higher gifts, and still I'll show you a more excellent way. And so he begins to kind of tip his hand. And what we see is that the, under the pecking order that Paul picks up from God in terms of what we should desire for spiritual gifts is we want desires that benefit others. You know, this is different from the way we think about most things, right? I tend to want things in my life that make my life easier, that make my life better. But when, when Paul comes to it in this understanding for how the church operates and how the church should work and how spiritual gifts should work in my life is the spiritual gifts God has given me are to be used to benefit, to enhance, to make better other people's lives. So this is radically different than we, than we normally see things in our lives, and this is how he begins to unite these things. So he spends all of chapter 13 talking about love and how great it is and how amazing it is and how it is the indispensable ingredient within the confines of the church. So he says, look, this is what you're warring over, different spiritual gifts and how they show up. And just remember, love is the greatest of all these things. It is the highest goal. It's what you should set your mind on to attain. And then in chapter 14, he ties both of these things together just in the first verse. Look what he says there. He says, pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts. So if Paul were to say, earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, they would, they would respond, and I think this would be fair, to say, look, we're already doing this. We've all seen Ross. We know what Ross has, and, and we want that. So Paul has to couple it with love. 
And love is measured in its outpouring and its effect on those around us, not myself. And so if you're going to say, is Matt loving well? You'd say, I don't know, do those around him experience well his outpouring of love? And if the answer to that is no, then you'd have to say he's not loving well. But if the answer to that is yes, so if Justin's loving well and just kind of raking me over the coals in his introduction, and you say, no, that's, that's good, it's good-natured ribbing, or it's just him being a jerk and being crass. And so you have to determine that, right? And I would say that, no, that, you know, we'll talk about that on Monday. <laughs> He'll be at camp, though, so it'll be one of those conversations by myself again. <laughs> so he says to pursue love. So what does it look like for us corporately to pursue love? If we're going to corporately pursue love, then it necessarily means that somebody else gets to be more important than, than I do. And somebody else gets to be more important than, than you, right? So as you sit here, and you look to your right, and you look to your left, you look in front of you, and you look behind you, you see other people. And these other people, from your perspective, have to be more important. They have to be. Now, this is so different. Because normally we come to church because we want something for ourselves. And this is good, right? We want something for ourselves, but if it stops there, and, and, and the only reason you come is to get something for yourself so that you can be better, so that you can grow more, so that you can feel better, and if it stops there, then you have interrupted what God desires to do with you for his church. See, God desires for you to grow. He desires for you to move closer to him for the benefit of those around you. So the people to your right and to your left and in front of you and behind you can grow closer to the Lord. And so there is no pursuit of love that finds itself ending with me. It always begins with me and then it finds its way out. So Paul, he says we need to pursue love and he says we need to earnestly desire the spiritual gifts. Now, this is going to differ a great deal according to your kind of denominational background and affiliations and your experience as to how you fill in and how you understand what he means when he says the spiritual gifts. <clears throat> so if you grew up in kind of conservative Baptist or independent Baptist or just kind of conservative circles, the gifts for you fit in a really small box, they're really well ordered, and they never make you sweat in uncomfortable places, Right? Right? But if you grow up in, in an Assemblies of God or a Pentecostal background or more charismatic background, you see that box and you put TNT in there and you blow it up and you say, this is, what's wrong with y'all? You're spiritually constipated. Like, what's going on with this church? Why aren't you, you know, more just giving with what the Spirit leads? We're like, that makes me uncomfortable. I want to go back into my box. I like it in here. It's dark. It's dank. It's mine. Step on outside. But what does Paul say here? Does he give us the option to do that? No, he doesn't. He says, desire the spiritual gifts. So the question uh, you know, automatically comes to us, are we pursuing love? And in the midst of pursuing love, are we coupling it well with desiring the spiritual gifts? Are you merely satisfied to live kind of uh, status quo Christianity and say, look, I don't want to be used mightily. I don't want to do anything all that impressive. I just want to come. I want to learn. I want to be faithful-ish, and, and, and then I just want to die at some point. And I think that for most of us, for a lot of us, for too many of us, this is our level of what we'd say, I'm satisfied with this in Christianity. Because if I were to come to you and say, let me ask you a question. How would you say that God has gifted you 
in salvation? What would you say are your spiritual gifts? And for many of us, we, we don't have a ready response to this, right? Maybe you begin to think back over the list of things, and, and quickly you run through the list of things you don't have. Oh, I can't heal, can't speak in tongues, can't you want to walk on water. Oh, that was just Jesus. Can't do this, can't do that. But really, like, just think about it and kind of take on your notes right there and say, what are my spiritual gifts? And begin to write those out. And then when you've written those out, begin to ask yourself the question of how are my spiritual gifts being impactful in the lives of those around me? And this begins to evaluate our hearts. And this begins to evaluate our effectiveness. And this begins to reveal whether or not we are faithfully fulfilling what God has called us to do. We want to pursue love. We want to be impactful in the lives of those around us. And we want to be impactful in their lives within the confines of the church in the exercise of our spiritual gifts. God gave you certain gifts in salvation for the benefit of those around you. He did. And there are people in this church and there are people in this community that desperately need you to exercise those gifts because they need to hear from the Lord. They need to be impacted by his love. They need to be visited by his presence, and they're waiting on you to do it. And so just as we are to pursue love, we are to earnestly seek after and desire these spiritual gifts to the betterment of those we encounter. And look what Paul does. The whole issue there in Corinth is speaking in tongues. They think it's just the greatest thing since sliced bread, and they don't even have that yet. And so he writes to them, and he says, but, but in, in this desiring of spiritual gifts, we especially want you to prophesy. And so we kind of get to the issue of what is he talking about and prophesying. And, and this just kind of you know, runs the gambit in our imagination. And so some of us think, oh, prophesy, what he's talking about is within the New Testament. It says Jesus did so and so, so that this would be. Or somebody said a son uh, is given to you. And all these kinds of things. And others of us, when we think about prophesying, we just think of dashing people on the rocks, right? And so what Paul wants in your mind as you're populating this and understanding this is for everybody to walk around and saying. Say, woe and gloom. You're all going to die. True. Everyone in this room is going to die at some point. Right? That's a true statement. Don't be shocked. You are going to die. But that's not primarily what he's talking about in terms of prophecy. What he's talking about in terms of prophecy is taking the text and making it plain. Taking the revealed word of God and making it plain and readily understood within a group of people. And so he's going to go on in verses 2 and 3 and compare speaking in tongues with prophecy. So speaking in tongues, he says, For one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men but to God. For no one understands him, but he utters the mysteries in the Spirit. Quite simply, he's talking about prayer. And so Paul, when he's describing what it is to speak in tongues, isn't some disorderly manifestation taking place in the church service to where Ron jumps up in the back and starts spouting something, and, and we're all just kind of look around saying, what's going on? Somebody called 911. Something's going on with Ron. But what Paul's talking about here quite simply seems to be direct, express communication with God, that everybody else around them, unless they have the gift of interpretation, finds it to be... Uh, just, just something they don't quite understand. He turns and he says, well, let's think about prophecy. He says, on the other hand, the one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding, their encouragement, and their consolation. Do you see how he's talking about it's taking the word and making it plain and tailoring it to different situations? Just think about those three things. He says, if you prophesy, 
You're speaking to people for their upbuilding. Probably my first two or three years here, every time I wrote a letter, uh, I ended it with the same scripture reference. And Hebrews 13, 20 and 21 has this beautiful picture of what it is to build somebody up with the word of God. He says, now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in thus that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. So to build somebody up is to go to somebody and to know them to a certain level, to know that their life is in ruins. All of these various things are incredibly difficult for them. And to help them begin to kind of put their life back together and say, this is what the word says to you in the midst of this situation, that when your husband left you, and this is what the word says to you, when your wife left you, this is what the word says to you, when your children are rebelling, this is what the word says to you, when you've lost your job and your health is on the rocks, this is what the word says to you. And you begin to kind of help them reorder and to upbuild and to build up their lives according to what the word expressly directs. So it's in graciousness, it's in love. In the midst of pursuing love, you're showing them how to put their life back together according to the way God's word would have it. The idea of encouragement, to speak a prophetic word is to offer a word of encouragement to someone. In the midst of this uh, world, and sometimes it feels like it's spinning out of control, we think of Jesus' word in John 16, 33. He says, I've said these things to you that in me you may have peace. I've said these things to you. I've offered this discourse. I've offered this teaching that in me you may have peace. In the world you'll have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world. And some of us are in desperate need of encouragement. We need somebody to come into our lives to see the mess that we've made of it, the mess that the people around us have made of it, and how it spilled over to be uh, terrifically impactful, detrimentally so, to our lives. And to come to them and not offer a word of condemnation to say, what's wrong with you? Why can't you do anything right? What, what's wrong with you? I, like, I just solved this. I just fixed this for you. What in the world's wrong with you? But instead, to come over to someone and say, look, man, I, I understand the world is spinning out of control. But in the midst of all of these things, I can absolutely take heart and find encouragement. Because you follow a one and you worship a one who came into the world that the world might be overcome through the shed blood of his son. Take heart. In Jesus, there is peace. We can offer a word of encouragement. Begin to see how, how prophecy and engaging in the prophetic is so incredibly helpful. He says, and, and we can offer a word of consolation. One of my favorite passages comes out of Lamentations 3. Lamentations 3, Jeremiah is just kind of doom and woe and talking about how awful and how terrible everything is. But in the midst of these things, in the midst of this kind of uh, introspective pity party and evaluating how terrible life is for him, it, to that he says, my soul continually remembers it and is bowed down within me. But in the midst of all these things, look at what he says. But this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. There's something Jeremiah remembers, and it's the remembrance of it that gives him hope, that offers him consolation. And that is that the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They're new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. To be able to come to somebody who's struggling with depression or anxiety, 
They're just bowed over. I mean, life is just too much, and everything is crushing down and inside them. And to offer a word that's so much more helpful than get over it, what's wrong with you? Like, it's time to act like a grown-up now. It's time to quit struggling with these things. It's time that you quit being sad. Instead of offering words like that or that are incredibly insensitive and unhelpful, we have the possibility to come near them with the healing power of our sovereign Lord, to come near to them and to tell them that in the midst of being found in his purposes and plan, there's hope for the depressed. There's hope for the anxiety-ridden. That even in the midst of an anxiety or a panic attack, God still remains faithful even when in these moments it doesn't feel like he is. We extend to them love. We extend to them patience. And we show them how the word of God still ministers to them in the midst of these times of crushing disappointment and being overcome with anxiety and depression. So we see the incredible benefit to it in the church, right? So he continues on this vein of talking about it. He says in verse 4, The one who speaks in a tongue builds himself up, but the one who prophesies builds the church up. Now, Paul isn't denigrating. He's not talking bad about tongues. Now, if you grew up in, likely, if you grew up in an SBC church, a a conservative church, they didn't talk about tongues very much, right? Because it makes makes conservative Christians very uncomfortable. I don't like to talk about it. It's making me uncomfortable. But what is Paul saying? He's not offering a word saying it's worthless, it's got no point. He's saying in the midst of this, in the midst of you communing with God, you conversating with God, it is building you up. It, in some sense, is providing for you upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. But no one around you knows what's going on. Nobody around you understands. He says the one who prophesies builds up the church. And so we begin to recognize that the seminal thing that Paul wants us to understand and to exercise in the use of our spiritual gifts is that we would use them to build up his church. This is what he wants you to do. This is how he wants you to utilize the things that he's given you in building up the church and making it strong and making it healthy and making it impactful in whatever community it finds itself in. Because as God has set it up and as he has ordained it in his providence, the church is the hope of all nations. The church is the vehicle that God has designed to communicate the gospel. The church is meant to be a lighthouse that when somebody is in need, they can look over and say, I see there a church. I see there a place where I can get help, a place where I can be ministered to. We see there a place of what the church should be. When somebody's struggling financially, they should be able to come to a church and say, can you help me? And over and over again, we hope that we can when somebody's struggling in their relationships, when somebody's just, just born over, the church should be the place that they feel the need and the ability to go, and the church should be that for its members. And we should seek to be that for each other, building up one another. Paul turns back to the benefit of tongues. He says, now I want you to all speak in tongues, but even more to prophesy. Paul says, look, tongues is good, it's beneficial, but more than that, because I think that the most important thing is is what is beneficial to the masses, you need to be able to speak in prophecy, to engage in this. He tells us why. He says, the one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues, unless someone interprets why, so that the church may be built up. 
So he wants them to understand uh, the limited nature of speaking in tongues when it comes to building up the church. He's already said that it builds up the person, but it doesn't build up the church. And so in 6 through 9, he begins to kind of illustrate this and help them to understand they're in Corinth. Now, to put ourselves there, imagine that, that our church was completely overrun and everybody's speaking in tongues. And so Leslie jumps up in the back, Callie jumps up here in the front, Peter's over here, and they're just going at it, just speaking in tongues, just incessantly, just on and 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 on. And it's just pervasive. And it's just the only thing that you can pay attention to in the whole service. Well, what has Paul said? Well, that's great for them, but what about everybody else? That's great that they're being built up. It's great that they're having this experience of growing closer to God. We're not saying anything bad about it, but what about everybody else? How are they to be built up? So he describes it in terms of himself. He says, now, brothers, if I come to you speaking in tongues, how will I benefit you unless I bring some revelation or knowledge or prophecy or teaching? So he says, imagine that I stood in front of you and I began to engage in speech and you had no idea what I was saying. And so just on and on and on and on and on. Everybody's like, whoa, what's going on? What's Paul doing? He said, that right. And so it would be completely, completely unbeneficial for you. And so he gives three illustrations. Verse 7, he says, even if a lifeless instrument, such as a flute or a harp, uh, do not give distinct notes, how will anyone know what's played? Imagine that I took Kylie's trumpet and I got it and I just go, bop, 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 bop. This is such a good song. I love it. Bop, bop, bop. Oh, man, I really like it when he leans into the bridge. Bah, bah. You're like, what is this nonsense? I have no idea what he's doing. Clearly, he's not very talented at playing the trumpet. Somebody take it away and beat him with it, right? It's just driving me insane. It, all it is is just bah, bah, bah. He says, nobody knows what's played because there's no variation to the tune. He says, even if a bugle gives an indistinct sound, who will get ready for battle? And he says, look, in the midst of the confines of the Roman Empire, if they're out there and they're fighting the battle, and the guy picks up the bugle and he only knows one note, and so it's just ba ba ba, a lot like the trumpet player earlier. And he says, how are we gonna know if we're to attack or treat or gather up or it's time for lunch? We simply won't know because we don't understand what he's playing. So he brings it back to them. He says, so with yourselves, if your tongue with your tongue, you utter speech that is not intelligible. How will anyone know what is said? For you will be speaking into the air. Understand here, he did not say you're uttering speech that is nonsensical. Why is that important? I think it's important because one of the things that we observe and see in, in certain charismatic displays of the Spirit, notice I'm not saying all, in certain of these, that it's just people out for themselves. Or they just want to be seen, they want to be wowed, they want to be, I have people look at them, and so they're just up there saying nonsensical things. And I think there, there is an instance of that, especially within the U.S. But he doesn't say nonsensical. He says it is not intelligible. What he means to say there is you're not readily able to understand it. So he gives us an example of that. He says in verse 10, there are doubtless many different languages many different languages in the world, and none is without meaning. But if I don't know the meaning of the language, I'll be a foreigner to the speaker, and the speaker a foreigner to me. Now, when I grew up, I lived out of the country, and whenever we, would, whenever we first moved to uh, Norway, for example, you'd be out, and you'd be downtown, and everybody around you is speaking a language you don't know. And when they do that, if, if, if you only speak one language, and they're speaking a language you don't know, it becomes white noise. Right, so you can sit in a park or in a busy city square surrounded by the hustle and bustle of people. 
you don't speak a language, it becomes white noise, and they're just, you know, hurdy birdy birdy, you know, whatever. And all of these things, and it's Scandinavian. And so that's <laughs> not Norwegian, don't, don't look that up. And so uh, all these things, and kind of communicating the same thing. And so when Valerie and I moved to Prague, it was the same thing. Everybody's going around, and, and it sounds like dragons talking. And we just don't have a clue, and it's just delightful and so enjoyable, and we're not distracted by the languages around us. But as you begin to pick up language, you just have a hard time turning it off. I can remember in the summers when we'd fly through Amsterdam, we'd end up in the airport, and I would hear people walk by speaking English, and it was just like being slapped across the face. You're like, what are you saying? You're speaking English. I totally understand you. And this is the point Paul is making. This is the point Paul is making. He says, if everybody speaking around you is engaged in a language that you don't understand, and he's giving us the indication that speaking in the tongues is intelligible, it has meaning behind it, it's relating to God, it is able to be understood by the one who interprets, he said, but if you don't have the ability to understand it, it's white noise. He says it's like speaking to a foreigner, and, and what he's conveying there in the Greek, he said it's like the person saying blah, 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 blah. But it's intelligent speech. But if we don't have the ability to understand it, to have it interpreted, and Paul's going to get to that later in chapter 14, then it has no place within the corporate worship setting of the church. And this is his whole point. It can be useful individually for building up the person. It could even possibly be useful within the confines of a corporate worship setting if it's interpreted. Not just someone stepping up and saying, I think what he meant to say was, it's time to go to lunch. But standing up as they're also gifted with the interpretation of tongues to communicate for what purpose? The building up of the church. So this is kind of how he's laid it out, right? This is Paul in some sense. This is his introduction to the difficulty of tongues in Corinth. And, and for us, it's this introductory idea to how we function with our gifts within the confines of the church. And so he concludes it with verse 12. He says, so with yourselves, since you are eager for manifestations of the Spirit. Are you eager this morning? Do you desire for God to do something fantastic with you? Do you desire to be phenomenally impactful to the people around you as God's Spirit moves in your life? Or are you merely satisfied to stay with the status quo experience of Christianity? Maybe God uses me to impact somebody, maybe he doesn't. See, for the Christian, for the person whose heart is, 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 is given to God, for the person who would say that there's no area, there's no aspect of my life that is off limits, there's no future plans that you can't interrupt, there's, there's no purposes that you can't interject into, there's no course that you might not set me unto. The only option for us is to be eager for the manifestations of the Spirit. I want to live a life completely yielded to the direction of God. Whatever his Spirit purposes, whatever his plans design, I want them to be so incredibly manifested and displayed in my life that everybody around me is supremely impacted by the outpouring of his Spirit. And he sees that in the church in Corinth. It's just misdirected. They forgot that the whole reason God pours out his spirit on them, on the people of their church, is for the other people in their church. And today, where you sit, 
there are people in this church and in this community that need your spiritual gift at work in their life. I'm not talking about just your generosity. I'm not talking about just your time. I'm talking about whatever gift God has given you supernaturally in his Holy Spirit. There are people in this church that need you to be used by him. But this is the rub, right? This is the difficulty. You don't have to do it. And many of us don't. Many of us don't. Nobody else knows. Nobody else sees. Nobody else observes. It's not like in the office we've got this this list of all the various ways that people are gifted. And we're like, what do we need? We need some giving. Who's got the giving gift? Let's call them again. Right? Who's got got the, the, the gift of discernment? Who's got the gift of helps? More often than not, what we're calling and looking for is the person who hasn't yet developed the ability to say no. Hey, look, I know you're so busy that you've begun to neglect your job, but one more thing. And they're like, I can't say no. We're like, I know, and that's why we're calling you again. You've not yet developed the ability, which is not counsel we give them until after they've said yes. No, really. (laughs) You need to find ways to pare back. But we don't have that. We've got something so much better. You've got something so much more impactful. You've got something so much more beneficial. You have, if you're a follower and believer of Jesus Christ, his spirit living inside of you, empowering and equipping you to be supremely effective to the people of this church and community. Will you say yes? Will you say yes? Paul's instructions are for us to strive to excel in the building up of the church. He's already told us back in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 27 that we are the body of Christ and individually members of it. And as a member of his body, whether you are here in formal membership with us or not, if you are a Christian, you are a member of his body and it is good for you to be a member of a local body so that you might manifest that with other people. Your job, your role, is to excel, not to just do the status quo, but to do everything so incredibly well that you might build up the church so that when the church is built up, the community might behold it, lost people might see it, and their lives would forever be changed for all eternity because they've put their faith and hope in Jesus because they've seen Jesus in the church. Amen? Let me pray for us. Father, we <clears throat> thank you for your word, for its clarity. God, I thank you for the challenge that it is for many of us to live lives completely surrendered to the Spirit. And so, God, I pray that that your spirit would just be encouraging us in that, removing from us the obstacles that we put in, the the things that we are struggling with, the excuses we make for not allowing our gifts to be used mightily by you. God, I pray for those who are just really still struggling with what is my gift, that they would just sit in that question, that they would wait 
they would pray and that they would have an earnest desire to know and God that in the midst of that you would speak to them and show them the good things that you've given them in salvation and Father too we pray for those here who in the hearing of this they know they've not been gifted anything because they know they've never surrendered themselves to you they've never cried out to you for forgiveness and for salvation so God I pray for those in this place who in the midst of this hearing recognize they've never given themselves to Jesus the one who took on sin who died in their place and who asked them to come God that you would lead them to yourself that in Jesus they would be made whole and be forgiven Father I pray for us as a church that we would be a church that gives men and women opportunities to use <clears throat> their giftedness the building up of your church. God, help us to be faithful. Help us to surrender to you in all things. We submit these things to you in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.